Following on from episode 137's discussion of Nathan Ballinger's short story, Wild Acre, in which we discussed how this related to the the themes of uh, insanity in Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraft that we discussed for the previous few episodes, I am delighted to say that uh, Mr. Ballinger is joining us for an interview this episode, or this special episode. Uh, so welcome, Nathan, and, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's let's launch straight into uh, a discussion of of Wild Acre itself and how it relates to these themes that we've we've been talking about. Okay. Uh, so I th- the thing that drew me particularly to Wild Acre, which you know sort of made me love it as soon as I read it, uh, was the fact that it, it did something I hadn't really seen in a horror story before, which is it, it got the classical horror parts of it out of the way fairly quickly and then explored the after effects of it in in a really painfully realistic way uh which which was you know very very affecting um what was it particularly that that drew you to to write this kind of story well when i was uh writing the stories uh that kind of filled that book north america lake monsters i was preoccupied with um, back characters and events, uh, or what would be a background character or event in a typical horror story, and and so when, when I was in that mindset, I was thinking about werewolves, which are you know uh, probably my favorite monster, and uh, and it, it it occurred to me that that most of the uh, stories that we see, whether about werewolves or vampires or what have you, are about the monster and the entanglement with the creature. And then once the end, once it's defeated or, or once it dispatches the heroes, whichever happens, uh, the story is over. And I was interested in what happens to people after all that happens. You know, how does that affect you? And so I just wanted to, I wanted to write a story in which the monster appears in the first part and doesn't come back and we just have to deal with the uh, with the after effects how, what it does to the psyche of somebody who was involved uh, so did, did you do a, a lot of research into to PTSD because it, I mean it, it struck me that the portrayal of, of PTSD in that story um, was as I said really quite painfully accurate uh, oh, well, I'm glad to hear it uh, and the answer is no because uh, I wasn't thinking about PTSD when I wrote it. I wasn't thinking ah. that it was that kind of story. I was just thinking, I was approaching it more from the idea of, of the idea of how masculinity manhood is defined and what happens when, when these sorts of uh, reductive ideas that this character has grown up with very limiting ideas are, are taken away from him. Um, and that's what I was exploring. And as far as the, the rest of it, it's just, I just, I just tried to imagine what it would feel like, you know, how, how would one react, uh, if one survived an experience like that and couldn't trust the people that he saw around him, uh, couldn't trust the world to behave the way he had been taught that it should. Uh, and I'm, I'm very gratified because I've, I've heard the PTSD, uh, uh, angle uh discussed before from other readers and i was happy that it was 
reflected accurately, or at least, you know, as accurately as I, I as I could do it. But uh, but it wasn't my intention to do it. All right, from that particular angle. No, I, it certainly resonated with me. I mean, I, I, I had mild PTSD many years ago, uh, following, you know, a fairly bad mugging and, um, you know, it stayed with me for, you know, quite a few years afterwards. And you know, there were so many little things that you put in that story that absolutely resonated with uh, the way that I, I reacted for a long time afterwards, the way little things would set me off, the way it manifested as anger, the nightmares and the, the constant reinvention within the imagination of the incident. And, you know, it, it, it just you know it, it felt absolutely perfect to me i'm grateful to hear it i'm it's uh yeah i wish i could say that i had sat down and, and thought specifically about ptsd and researched it but uh but i did not huh. i i you, you you talk about um you know the fact that you know werewolves are your favorite monsters and yeah. the the you know in Wild Acre, you know, as with a number of the stories in North American Lake Monsters, I mean you you present these these very sort of realistic environments, these very realistic characters, and very realistic problems that they're facing, and the 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 supernatural elements you know, are these intrusions into you know what would otherwise be you know, you know I think perfectly self-contained stories stories that would work you know without the supernatural elements i what is it that sort of keeps you coming back to you know the, the supernatural angle on on these very human stories well i think there are a couple things one uh, and most simply i just i just love it it's just pure love of uh, of the pulp aspects of the horror genre um, I love the monsters. Uh, I grew up reading about them, watching them in the movies, and they're just as much a part of my a part of my heart as uh, as anything else is. And so, it I want to write them. Uh, you know, uh, someone told me about Wild Acre that the story could as well have been uh, about a bear attack. And you know, my response was and remains. But why not put a werewolf in there if you can? I mean, why wouldn't yeah. you want to put a werewolf into a story? Absolutely. But, but I also think that it uh, it does it does inform the theme of the story too, because it's about an internal this internal anger, this internal monster. So it's it's not it's not entirely uh, arbitrary. Uh, but is but to to expand on your question though the. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking about with these kinds of stories, as I mentioned before, was just the idea of of approaching them from a from the angle of somebody who is not necessarily a protagonist in their traditional story. Hmm. And so, if you're going to do that, then often you're going to you're going to uh, deprioritize the fantasy or the horror aspect and concentrate more on on uh, on how this brief interaction spins a life out of control or spins it into a just a maybe a better direction but i was i was just i was fascinated by the idea of brief encounters with the supernatural and what happens to you after them and uh this was just one of those stories sort of building on that slightly i mean one one thing i've i've always been fascinated by when I talk to you know, other horror writers and and actually longtime horror fans is I mean you know the fact that we are all drawn to you know the, these these sort of dark things that we grew up with these monsters and these these you know dark themes and stories um, do do you find that you're actually frightened by horror? 
No, I'm not. Well, not typically. It, 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 I'm very rarely frightened by, uh, by horror, uh, movies or, and almost never by books. Um, and that's not this appeal to me. It's, it's, uh, it's not that I'm looking to be scared. I think that I'm looking for uh, some sort of recognition, some sort of congruency in the way I see the world or perceive the world in the way the writer or the filmmaker does. Um, it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of uh, it's a sort of lens, I guess. Um, and when I see when I see a particularly effective film, or when I read a horror uh, story or novel by an author that I like, it's uh, it's uh, it's 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 more recognition that I see, and a more kind of a an acknowledgement of how I feel in the world uh, that I respond to. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I agree entirely with that. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's just, I, 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 yeah, I think it's having grown up with all these things, you know, sort of feeding our imaginations that you know, is, is just, you know, is sort of just shaped the way we see the world. I think so, and it's beautiful too. I mean, I find like true beauty in uh, in in this, uh, the uh, the aesthetics, the gothic aesthetics, the uh, the you know the, the the candles and the spider webs, all that stuff. It's uh, it it just it makes me happy. It <laughs> lights me up inside in a way that uh, maybe more conventional depictions of beauty don't. Uh, it's just it's just what I respond to. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. Now, I mean, you. you you talked about the fact that you know this this sort of builds on what would be the ending of a, a normal horror story and takes it further on but one uh, one thing that um you know again I particularly liked about Wild Acre and a number of the stories in North American Lake Monsters is the fact that they don't offer sort of traditional cathartic resolutions for their characters Wild Acre in particular and you know I thought I thought that made it a much more unsettling story that if if it had a, a sort of traditional Additional, more action horror ending of him going back out into the woods and finding the werewolf again and confronting it and getting the resolution he so desperately needed, then it would have been a, a very safe traditional story and it wouldn't have been anywhere near as disturbing. Uh, what 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 is it? Do you think that makes for a powerful ending like that? How how how, how do you approach an ending like that? Well, I think the ending. Uh and, and, and with this story in particular, but I think how I generally approach endings is that I, I'm looking for some kind of resolution in the emotional arc of the character. Mm. I often couldn't care less about the, the, the more traditional plot in the background. Uh, it's of secondary concern. And I think this is where so much uh, horror kind of falls down for me, uh, is that especially especially in film, but in novels too, where the, uh, the attention is so focused on resolving the plot lines that, uh, that the internal effects of all of this on the characters are kind of given second or short shrift rather. And, uh, I find it dissatisfying. You know, I, mm. I, I, I don't care for that kind of thing. And, uh, and so I, so I'm um, yeah with these stories and especially with Wildacre. I mean, if I had put in the uh, if I had put in another confrontation with a werewolf, it would have undermined the entire point of that story. Yeah, which is that you don't get a resolution, is that you have these challenges and these uh, these that you face in life that that don't get resolved in the way you want them to, maybe at all, and 
and that's what's interesting to me. It's the it's it's how we as human beings, you know, deal with that that I find that I'm captivated by that I want to explore. Yeah, and and I I think yeah I, I take your point there that so trying to wrap up all the narrative threads in the story and try to provide you know proper resolutions and 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 often answers can be very anticlimactic. Um, yes. Yeah. I, yeah, you know, I, I recently saw Hereditary, um, which I thought was a, a you know very strong horror film and enjoyed it thoroughly. But I, you know, I, I found myself really wishing that they sort of cut the last thirty seconds out of that film, um, because you know it's it sort of yes, I, I sort of inferred a lot of the things that they're now telling me directly, and I think just having that element of mystery or the you know, making you know leaving me thinking about it would have been a lot better than just sort of telling me at the end. I, I I take a point on that one. Hereditary, Hereditary is one of the ones that I found to be quite successful, and I and I know the end divides a lot of folks. I I, enjoy, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, it was to me a lot like The Witch, in which it, was, mm. uh, it crosses into the sublime. You know what we th- what you think of is what you're steered toward, thinking of as a dark and downbeat ending, is suddenly pushed that one step further into something something beautiful uh and that's how i took hereditary but but i think that we're we're talking about the same sort of thing yeah yeah i, I it, it wasn't i mean just to be clear about hereditary it wasn't the entire ending i thought you know the way it ended was very powerful but it's just the fact that the last 30 seconds were almost you know telling the audience oh this is what you've been watching and let's let's sort of you know explain anything for anyone in the audience who hadn't quite grasped what was going on and i thought that sort of undermined the impact of it and i i, I think sort of resisting that and and letting the you know trusting the audience to uh to to come to their own conclusions i i think you know creates uh something a bit more complex emotionally and that that's one of the, the reasons why i was drawn particularly to the stories in north american lake monsters which is you know you you trust your readership yeah i i i try to keep that foremost in my mind as i write uh it, you know, i assume that everyone is is at least as smart as I am, if not smarter. And uh, I know that when I read uh, a story or a novel in which I feel like I'm being uh, condescended to or I feel like my hand is being held, I resent it. It, it mm. kind of drives me away from it. And I'm very, I believe strongly in not doing that. Now, going back to the, the theme of, of insanity in, in horror fiction, I, um, you know, as I said, I thought the, you know, the way you presented the trauma in, in uh, Wild Acre was, was particularly powerful. I, do, do you think that this is something that the horror genre normally handles well? Um, or, or, or was, you know, Wild Acre, you know, a, a, a conscious reaction to what you might have seen as shortcomings in the presentation of, of uh, trauma? I think more the latter. I think, I, I, I think that most horror fiction just doesn't concern itself with that. Hmm. And I think that goes back to what we're talking about with privileging plot over character. Um, it's, you know, I think the majority of it is about what happens, how does the action resolve, how does our hero... Uh, save the day or not. And, and, and again, that's the, the less interesting aspect of a story to me. And so I think it's not like, it's not as if they are necessarily presenting it poorly or badly. I just think it's not really 
the point of a lot of horror fiction. Um, and, and I wanted it to be the point of this particular story, at least. Oh, particularly with with Lovecraftian horror, and there is the idea, the theme running through Lovecraftian horror, that insanity is a reaction to, um, to to too much knowledge, to a fuller understanding of the the full horrors of the full scope of the universe, and you know the idea that there are some things the man was not meant to know. I, do do you think that that has any bearing whatsoever to a reality? Is it just a conceit? I mean, is it is it even something that's interesting to discuss in horror fiction? I I think it's interesting to discuss in horror fiction. It's a I, I think it's a I think it's an understanding of, uh, you know, quote unquote insanity that doesn't really jive with our present understanding of what mental health problems are. But I think it's, uh, I think as a, as a fictional tool, especially in the kind of fiction that Lovecraft wrote, uh, I think it lends itself very well to it. I think it's useful. I think it's, it's more of a, I don't know, when I think of the way he employed it, uh, and I'm no Lovecraft expert uh, by any means, but um, but it seems to me that he employed it as a kind of reaction against uh, hmm, a, a reaction against I think his own his own fears, his own uh, social fears, hmm. and I think uh, I don't, it seems it seems it's a very conservative way to, uh, and I mean that in the in the more in the purest sense of the word, in hmm. a way to. Uh, to to view the world in which any kind of any kind of progress, whether you consider that um, uh, social progress or whether you consider it even scientific progress, is something to be is a kind of Pandora's box at best, and a pure evil at worst, at least in, in from his point of view. And so, I think it was a way of uh, of of making that manifest in a way that that was frightening. Yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. I you're sort of tying those two aspects together because I know I've I've had this discussion. I, I can't remember whether it's ever come up on the podcast, but um, yeah, it's certainly something I've discussed with with Paul uh, on, on various occasions, which is this this uncomfortable realization that one of the things that makes Lovecraft such an effective horror writer is his xenophobia. The fact that he yeah. translates this fear of the other into something a bit more universal, um, and, and sort of helps people who may, might not share his bigotry understand the fear that his bigotry brought into his life and, and share it with him. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's both a good thing in that it's led to, you know, some of the defining horror of the, you know, the 20th century and, and a bad thing because, you know, that realization made me feel quite grubby for enjoying it. Yeah, uh, same here. It's a, uh, it's it's something it's something that's uh, it's you have to come to terms with. And I think if you're an honest reader, uh, and I think that's so much of what. First, I think it's so much of why Lovecraft remains such a powerful cultural uh, touchstone, uh, is because our world, especially in the last hundred hundred fifty years, is. Uh, expanding at breathtaking rates. We cannot keep up. We can, our, our brains can't keep up with how quickly our world is changing. And I think, I think that the, uh, the approach that he takes, the sort of the, 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 the cosmic horror, the, you know, the, the, the horror of uh, 
a vastness that you can't comprehend and that is indifferent to you at best is something that we can relate to, if not consciously, then definitely subconsciously. You know, it's something that is endemic, I think, to our to who we are right now. Mm. And uh, and I also think that this is what horror does. Um, it's it's a, they're kind of like I, I I always just think of it as like sort of these series of barks from the id. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's it's how we deal with what we're afraid of. And some of the, what we're afraid of is justified, and some of it, of what we're afraid of, you know, exposes our own limitations as people. Um, but it's how we process it. And when you do it well, then maybe others can process it too. Uh, the same way, maybe it helps. I definitely think horror is a kind of a, a, a useful uh, social mechanism for achieving catharsis through these, these like cultural, societal, or personal fears. No, absolutely. And I actually, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, when when you write your stories, I, do you consciously seek out your own fears and and try to draw them out in order to to explore them in this way, or are they more things that that subconsciously bubble up? They're more subconscious. Uh, there are a couple times when I will think about something specifically, um, but not often. Usually, I usually I, I try hard not to do that because I feel like you run the risk of being uh, didactic or mm-hmm. you run the risk of writing uh, the kind of fiction which is which is trying to steer someone one particular way. And there's nothing – I have no objections to that kind of fiction, but it's not the kind that I write because I don't find it – generally speaking, it doesn't, it doesn't impact me viscerally the way I would like fiction to do. Yeah. Um, and so I think much more in very small personal terms. Uh, and I, yeah, and I try not to tamper too much with the uh, the way these things kind of bubble up. So, having talked a little bit about Lovecraft, um, let, let's let's move on to Call of Cthulhu because I, w- when I read North American Lake Monsters, I contacted you on Facebook to to let you know how much I I enjoyed the book. And at that stage, I didn't realise you were a Call of Cthulhu player, and we 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 got talking, and I was you know surprised and delighted to find out that that you played Call of Cthulhu. Um, yeah, and it was a nice moment for me because I had been listening to your podcast for quite some time, <laughs> so it felt like a. <laughs> It felt like a, a special kind of validation. <laughs> well, it's, it's bizarre when the streams cross like that. Because yeah, it was <laughs> it was it was delightful for me as well. Uh, so, I, how how did you get into Call of Cthulhu? Uh, well, I guess like most of us, uh, I started playing D anD D when I was a kid, and uh, did that very haphazardly and and uh, irregularly for a while. And stopped for a long time, most of my adult life. And I was when I was in uh, living in New Orleans, I was tending bar down there, and a friend of mine started up another Dungeons and Dragons game, and I joined in with him and realized how much I loved it. You know, mm. it, was, it hadn't quite broken through into the sort of uh, cultural acceptance that it has today. So there's still a sense of uh, still a sense of secrecy about it. But uh, but I quickly overcame that and. Uh, <laughs> Wanted to start uh, when I moved to North Carolina. I wanted to start, you know, doing that myself. And I just graduate. I gravitated towards Call of Cthulhu because it was more in my wheelhouse. It was the, it was all those aesthetic trappings that I love so much. 
so yeah, I mean it's, it, that's kind of an unusual uh, thing because what, most of the Call of Cthulhu players I know of, of you know, our, our kind of age group are people who you know got into it back in the very very early days. So you, you're you're a relative newcomer to it. You you um I so so I mean how did you find it after your experiences of playing Dungeons and Dragons for years? Uh, liberating, um, <laughs> and this is not this is not a not a slam on D and D at all. I still I have fun doing that kind of thing as well. Mm. But uh, but I I like the uh, besides the aesthetics of it. I like the fact that uh, the characters are m- much more fragile and human. I, I love the fact that their arc tends to be uh, a descending one rather than an as- as- ascending one. Mm. And uh, and I like the fact that they they remain fragile uh, throughout their throughout their careers. You know, it's a, it's about. Oh, as all, all of your listeners know, I don't get to tell you what it's about. <laughs> I just like the. Uh, uh, I I like the fragility of it all. I like the I like the fact that they're very much human beings and not you know, murderous metal techs. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think perversely that makes it a, a slightly more heroic game than D anD D because you know it's, it's it's one thing to go off battling the forces of evil when you know you're a cleric who wields the power of a god or a a, 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 a wizard who who can warp the forces of space and time or you know a, a, a you know as you say some you know, battle tank in plate armor, but you know when you've got a middle aged librarian you know who's who's yes. going off armed with you know nothing more than a bit of booklet. That, that's that's a whole different story. I thoroughly agree. It's it's one of its great appeals to me. I, I I've seen you mention in another interview though that um, you, you're not particularly a fan of cosmic horror. Is that right? Well, uh, I may have phrased it poorly. Uh, it's not that I don't like cosmic horror. I, I enjoy reading it a lot. It's just not something I find myself drawn to write. Oh, right. That makes more sense then. Yeah. Yeah, there are plenty of cosmic horror uh, writers that I that I absolutely love, and uh, and uh, and of course this game is a, another example of that. It's just a person as a writer, it, I, it just doesn't draw me. Uh, it, it's just not what inspires my own my own thoughts. I, I think Call of Cthulhu is quite unusual in that respect, though, because I mean, you know, Lovecraft obviously, you know, was was the defining force of cosmic horror. But at the same time, I, I think Call of Cthulhu has has you know been used for so many different things over the years that you know, I, I think it, it's entirely possible to play it without ever touching on the cosmic horror aspects of it. Um, and yeah, you know, I just wondered whether you know when you played it, whether it was those sort of cosmic aspects you were drawn to in the game, or whether you were playing much more sort of human down to earth games. Uh, a little bit of both. I like them both. I like. I always prefer the more uh, the human centric stories. I I would I like it when in a game the, the players will uh, fully inhabit them. They will their own you know. Lives will take the story in interesting directions because of their personal concerns. But I am also very much drawn to uh, just the great kind of like bonkers epic scope of some of the some of the uh, the larger adventures where it just gets crazy. Uh, and but but I'm always more satisfied when they're when the characters are more than just uh, you know. Bundles of stats running around, interacting with this with the story. Yeah, I'd much rather, yeah, I'd much rather follow uh, their personal lives as they're swept up with this. 
Yeah, I think it's it's very easy to to play Call of Cthulhu in both modes. There, I mean, certainly when I was younger, I I I found it very easy to see investigators as as sort of disposable pawns that you know they they were just a means for interfacing with the larger story, and when they got killed, it didn't really matter much. But yeah, na- nowadays, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly that it's yeah it it it, it feels much more well horrific when you know it feels like a human story the story of these characters yeah we were recently playing your own blackwater creek oh and, yes uh, and uh and the characters kind of completely came you know they, they took on three dimensions and uh to the extent that they completely uh undermined the story that you had written and, uh, and often pursued the you know, strange you know other directions uh and it was fun. It was, uh, it was, we, you know, we left the script behind, but that's, these scripts are, are blueprints and jumping off points anyways. I'm sure you'll agree. Oh, absolutely. And it was fun too. Yeah. It was, it was very satisfying as a, as the person writing the game to, uh, to watch them, watch them take off in their own directions. Yeah. I, 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 I always enjoy it much more when, you know, we, we, we end up abandoning pretty much anything I've written. And it, yeah, I, even as a GM, I, I play role playing games to be surprised. Uh, if I know what's going to happen, I get bored. But if the players, you know, do something unexpected, take things in, in unusual directions and, you know, the story grows and expands into something far more, then, you know, that, that for me is a much more interesting experience at the table. Yeah. I mean, we're players too as keepers and, uh, mm. If we're not having fun, then why are we there? So do you find that there's any uh, crossover between your your life as a, a writer and your life as a as a GM or a keeper? Um, or, or, or are they completely separate things to you? They're almost completely separate. Um, they, they draw from different wells. Uh, my concerns are entirely different. Um, it, it, in fact, it took me when I first started uh, running games. It took me some time to to really understand that. I would try to kind of bring my sensibilities as a writer to the table, thinking it would be uh, of benefit, uh, and it actually hindered me a little while to for a while in uh, in figuring out how to run the table, how to kind of deprioritize the story, uh, and so the characters could you know take it in their own directions. And how not to impose my idea of a plot onto what was happening at the table when really mm. what you're just doing is is giving them things to to launch from, uh, and so I had to learn that. And it took me a little while to figure that out, and then yeah. probably uh, ran a couple clumsy games uh, until I did. The one area that they do kind of intersect is uh, is that it helps me when I'm writing fiction to uh, to remember to keep the sense of fun and the sense of play in it. Uh, things can get so over the top and so kind of uh, gonzo on a table, at a table, uh, that it's inspiring uh, to, when I'm, when I'm writing a story, to, to remember that it's, uh, it's okay to inject some of that into the story too, especially in more recent stories that I'm reading, or writing rather. Hmm. I, I, I don't know whether this is a, a common experience. I, uh, 
many, many years ago, I, I, I started out before I got into writing role-playing games, uh, writing fiction. Um, you know, not, not that I was particularly good at it, but, but it's, you know, what I, I, I started out with. But what I found was as I, I was sort of GMing more and more games and, you know, preparing stuff for that, that it was insidious. It sort of took over. And I found the more I did it, the more it, it sort of robbed me of my desire to write fiction because it was scratching the same itch, but at the same time, it, it did it in a much more immediate way, uh, and, and a much more interactive way. Uh, and, and I, yeah, I, I don't know you know, of anyone else who's had the same experience. And I'm always interested to see whether, you know, anyone's, anyone who, who's kind of worked in the two fields, uh, has, has felt anything similar. I mean, has anything like that ever happened to you? Uh, not with this, thankfully, because if it did, I wouldn't do it. Um, right. If it interfered with the writing, then I would put it aside. Mm. Uh, but yeah, they, they, uh, they, they come from different places and they serve different needs for me. Um, I, I like to write, uh, so deep into a particular perspective of a character when I'm doing stories. And that's nothing that I can, I can't do that at the table. I can't do it at all. Um, and so they seem like different animals. The only time, and this is completely different. I, uh, started for a while, for a very short period of time, I did some freelance journalism and that I found to my surprise was drawing from the same kind of energy as the writing did. Huh. I would finish up a piece of uh, a piece of journalism, and I would feel mentally exhausted. And the the, the idea of sitting down and writing more was uh, was was appalling to me. And so I stopped doing that uh, because it got in the way of the fiction. But happily, this uh, this seems to complement it. It doesn't really seem to to interfere at all. So when you when you run Call of Cthulhu, uh, do you tend to write your own material, or do you tend to draw mostly from from published products? Uh, published products, and that's probably one of the reasons why there's no sort of uh, interference. Uh, because if I was if I was spending uh, that kind of creative energy, that sounds like such a pretentious phrase. But if, <laughs> no, I was like, no. if I was if I was you know trying to write material for the game, uh, original material, I would. I would be drawing from that from that well, and I don't want to do that. So I, I will stick with the with uh, published products and and run those instead. And you've never been tempted to write anything for RPGs yourself, have you? Not really. Uh, I did do something with uh, this uh, something called Storium a few years back. Oh yes, yes, I remember that. It was kind of a, yeah. and I did I did something. I'm trying to remember what I called it. Uh, but it was something like this: uh, these uh, pirates out, you know, traversing the waters outside of hell. And I kind of did a write-up for that because that was a that was a setting for a story that I was writing at the time. And so it was easy for me to sort of to sort of break it down into parts, and it, and it helped me figure out the story. Um, and so there was almost a selfish reason for doing it. But um, but beyond that, I haven't done anything else. And I, and yeah, I don't, I don't. I'm reluctant to, to explore it because of what we just talked about. Mm. I'm afraid that it would, uh, would take energy away from from what I need to be doing. 
I, it's it's interesting, you know, hearing you say that because yeah, you know, there's another one of your stories I've read fairly recently, a story called Skull Pocket, um, which you know is very very different than the stories in North American Lake Monsters. And and when I read that, uh, the, you know, it was the, the the setting that you created for this sort of very Charles Adams-ish, uh, sort of vaguely Lovecraftian setting with uh, you know in 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 small town America that t- to me felt like an rpg setting i yeah i was reading that and i was thinking uh, yeah at the end of it i i really want to set a game here and i I did wonder reading that that yeah whether you'd done something similar as you just talked about there with storium and and you sort of gamed it out before before you ever wrote about it i didn't but that's that uh is one of the settings that probably could benefit from at least from at least that kind of thinking um and and I, I I can see where it would lend itself to that sort of that sort of treatment, um, and you know it's going back to your question about about whether I draw from gaming when I do writing. Uh, there are probably ways that I do that I, I'm not totally conscious of. You know, um, I had been playing Cthulhu when I wrote that story. I had been you know reading. Uh, Charles Adams is definitely an influence, and uh, and and influences, as I'm sure you know yourself. You know when you're when you're writing something, you're drawing from a vast pool of uh, of your own experience, mm. reading experience particularly, and so you're probably affected by things you don't even realize, and uh, and and that's a good example of what I was talking about too. When I was thinking about try to have fun, it's okay to it's okay to be a little a little bonkers sometimes when you're writing and put crazy things in there. It was more fun for me to write that way. And, you know, playing RPGs, uh, was, was part of what encourages me to do that. So, but as far as, uh, yeah, as far as gaming it out, uh, that's nothing that, that, uh, I think I would want to do personally, but I mm. think it'd be fun of to see it done. That would be, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I was very, very excited to hear that you're expanding the setting of that uh, across multiple stories now, the the Hobbs Landing setting of Skull Pocket. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really can't wait to see where you take that. Yeah, I've got, I've got plans for the place. <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. So, uh, moving back to North American Lake Monsters... Uh, you, you touched upon something earlier, which um, yeah, sort of interested me. Which is, I, th- there were very definite themes that ran through that collection. I mean, not just the the sort of realistic uh, portrayal of, of everyday horrors mixing with the supernatural horrors, um, but the fact that you know, it, it did seem to be mostly a collection about uh, sort of masculinity in crisis. Uh, was this a, a conscious thing that you were exploring in the in the collection, or was it just sort of the way the pieces happened to fall? Uh, more the latter. It wasn't. It wasn't terribly conscious, especially not at first. Um, but yeah, I, I I came over time to recognize that that was definitely a uh, a thread connecting most of the stories. And it was just, I I suppose, it was just something that I was preoccupied about. Uh, regarding myself, I was probably working out a lot of my own uh, insecurities or feelings of feelings of uh, insufficiency to one task or another, and uh, to one aspect of life or another. And and so that was just the uh, that was just the kind of water I was pulling up at the, at the, during those years. 
and uh, and those stories in particular tended to be pretty cathartic. Uh, it, they were they were kind of unpleasant to write for the most part. Mm. But uh, and I would kind of feel down for a while after I had finished one and not want to start another one quickly. But uh, those kinds of things uh, they don't trouble me much anymore, and so uh, maybe that's why I'm not writing about them anymore. Yeah, I mean that that's that's something I wanted to move on to. That you, I, I, certainly, you know, uh, from from what I've seen with Skull Pocket, and you've mentioned you've got a new collection coming out next year. Is it uh, Atlas of Hell? Yeah. Uh, um, yes. And you mentioned about that, uh, you know, in I think another interview that I saw. This is going to be a, a a very different collection of short stories, perhaps a more playful one. Um, yeah, is, is, is that the case? I mean, is, is your work, you know, sort of moving in a more, not maybe playful is the, the, the wrong word, but, um, perhaps a less realistic direction? Well, this book is anyway. Um, beyond that, I, I feel like this one and, and North American Lake Monsters are kind of like staking territory. Uh, uh, this book swings much more heavily into the overtly fantastic. Um, although it is very much still steeped in horror, but um, uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to have more fun writing, you know. And I remember after the first book came out, you know, people that I knew would would come up to me and and, and express interest in reading it, and I would hand it to them, and I would feel a little guilty because <laughs> I was like, oh well, I'm probably going to ruin your day. <laughs> and uh, and there were some uh. friends of mine who I knew would hate it because it was because of the kind of fiction that it is, you know, it's, uh, I knew they wouldn't enjoy it. And I was like, I'd like to also write something that was more fun for me to write and, uh, maybe more fun to read too. And I call it playful as you did, but other people like to me, skull pocket is a very playful story. Oh, absolutely. Then, yeah. uh, other people say, well, yes, but you know, children are murdered in spectacularly horrible ways. I was like, well, I yeah. guess that's true. Yeah, but but, but but there's plenty of children's fiction and fairy tales and so on where that's the case as well. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but yeah, this is a this is more. I think my I, I think of it as kind of like a love letter to like to to Charles Adams type comics to uh, to Hammer horror films uh, to that sort of like uh, over the top you know sort of uh, blood soaked satanic aesthetic. Oh, I can't wait then. Uh, and and <laughs> in between the two books, you you, you put out a, a novella, The Visible Filth, uh, which uh, yeah. oh, you, you, we we talked a little bit before about how, how horror doesn't really scare us. But I, you know, the, the Visible Filth is one of the few stories that I've read in my adult life that it, it didn't scare me, but it it did get under my skin. It did actually creep me out, uh, which is something oh, that never happens when I read horror fiction. That's really gratifying to hear. <laughs> I think uh, I think I think uh, getting under someone's skin or just creeping someone out is probably the more realistic goal for a horror writer. But uh, that one will be an Atlas of Hell, by the way. Oh, excellent! I, well, and also, and, uh, it, also, it's being filmed at the moment, or is being filmed? Is that right? Yes, it is. Uh, it's they finished filming uh, in the spring. Uh, it is in post production uh, in London right now, as I understand it. And it does not have a title yet, uh, but uh, I guess that's coming soon because they're looking to release it in April. Oh, brilliant! Of next year, and, and this is being directed by the same director as Under the Shadow. Is that right? Yes, Babak and Vari. Yes, oh, right. Uh, 
a very nice. Uh, it was such a it was such a pleasure. I, I got the uh, got an email from my agent uh, telling me about this. Uh, this is before the the movie hit Netflix, and he sent me a link so I could watch it. And I was just I couldn't believe my good fortune. I yeah, this thing. I was like, this guy's really good. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, uh, I, Under the Shadow. It was I, th- I think probably my favorite horror film of the last couple of years. Yeah, it's 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 terrific, absolutely terrific. I can't wait to see what he does with this. So ap- apart from um, you know, the Atlas of Hell and apart from this this upcoming film, is is there anything else that our listeners can expect from you in the near future? Well, I'm working on a novel, about a little over halfway done with it. Uh, I, I anticipate being done with the first draft by the end of the year. Uh, it is, again, different from both Atlas and Lake Monsters. This is, takes place on... Uh, Mars in the 1930s. Uh, it is a, a small little uh, town. It's been a, a colony that's been cut off from Earth, and they're just trying to come to terms with their new isolation and figure out how to uh, how to live. I've kind of considering uh, the elevator pitch is True Grit and uh, The Martian Chronicles. Oh it's wow! Very different from anything I've done before, and. So far, um, so far, I think it's working pretty pretty well. We'll see. Oh, I, I can't wait. <laughs> Th- thank you very much for your time, Nathan. I, uh, that's that's been a fascinating interview, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, answered a lot of questions for me. So uh, th- thank you again. You're very welcome. Bye. It was a treat to be on. Thank you. Tomes. Tomes.